Welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to Socratic Questioning in Depression Therapy. Three ways to ask perspective-shifting antidepressant questions. The wise man doesn't give the right answers. He poses the right questions. Claude Levi Strauss. Samantha, a client of mine, stared at the wall. I'll never be free of him. He follows me everywhere. Distractedly, she waved at her head. Not out there, but in here. Things had gotten desperate. She'd left him, but the persistent guilt was strangling her. Thorny, torturous roots from the past were smothering her life in the present. Constant rumination had her in its vice-like grip and it wouldn't let go by day or night. A pervading sense that it was her fault. His drinking, the relationship breakdown, had eventually tipped her into depression. She blamed herself constantly. Samantha had always been the carer, the one who looked after her alcoholic father, the one who comforted others, the one who cared, the one who saw her own basic needs as mere selfish desires. But this caring woman had left Mike three years before she came to see me for therapy. How could she? After all, he was an alcoholic, just as her father had been. How could she have left him, she thought. Mike frequently threatened suicide, constantly shouted and put her down, told her she'd have blood on her hands for abandoning him. He hadn't done anything to himself other than continue drinking, but she still felt responsible for him. He'd pushed her guilt button and never let go. I'm a wicked person, she told me. I don't deserve to be happy, Mark. I'm only here because my daughter deserves more from me as a mother. And she clearly wasn't wicked. And I didn't tell her, no, you're not wicked, because I wanted her to tell herself that and mean it. So why didn't I want to contradict her? Others had already gone down the, the um, you're not a bad person route. It had proved about as effective as telling a young adult brought up on perpetual pampered praise that they've messed up on their first job. No, not going to accept that. Won't listen to it. Disconfirming feedback when psychological conditioning has been strong is not at all welcome, whatever form of conditioning it took. So if I didn't try to argue with Samantha's depressive thinking, what did work? What changed Samantha's hopeless mindset? Learning to live and love again. What do you notice about Samantha's thoughts? And that's not a Socratic question because I'll answer the question for you. She was thinking in absolutes, all or nothing. I am a bad person or a wicked person. Not I'm a multi-textured, complex person with good and less good bits in me. Okay. It was all or nothing. It was absolutist, extremist. Early on in the first session, she told me tearfully, he was misunderstood, meaning her ex, Mike. I should have made more effort to understand him, she said. And a little later, I should have been there for him. He was living on welfare, having drunk all his money and much of hers into his fast decaying liver. But still, she felt she should have been there for him. But later in the session, I helped Samantha become calmer and so much more able to see wider perspectives around what she'd been obsessively ruminating about. Depression doesn't like wider perspectives. Okay, The change. So later, Samantha said, 
She didn't want to give away a life of potential fulfillment. Trying to understand Mike, she had a child and herself to think about. So maybe Mike was misunderstood. Okay, maybe we all are. But anyway, understanding someone may only be the first step to helping them. And she had found he wouldn't accept help. Anyway, how do you actually know when you've understood someone? Okay. No one understands me. Well, what is there to understand? And what will they understand? What if there's nothing to understand in the same sense that we might come to understand how interest rates work or a car engine runs? Sometimes understanding someone means you might have to leave them, okay, as she had done to protect herself and her daughter. Flexible, non-depressive thinking was what she needed, and it needed to come from her, not me. So how had Samantha gone from rigid self-blame to wider non-depressive perspective? Socratic questioning, teaching by asking instead of telling. Some practitioners assume a therapeutic reframe happens when we suggest to a client what to think, tell them what to think. But this is often not the best strategy, as emotional biases are resistant to logical argument. We see this in religion and politics. Being told to think about things in a certain way can mobilize a hidden need to rebel, a need lodged deep within many people and associated with the basic human needs of maintaining a sense of autonomy and control, and in some people, status. If I tell you that you should do something, even if you cognitively agree with me, you may be emotionally and behaviorally drawn to doing the opposite, you know, the rubber band effect. I pull one way and you pull the other. Not only that, but telling a depressed person how they should think can leave them focusing more on how misunderstood they feel uh, and also feeling guilty for not thinking that way. Instead, reframes can be triggered by jokes, puns, purposeful misunderstandings, and, as we'll see, simple Socratic questions. A reframe will lead to wider knowledge and new ways of not just thinking, but being and feeling. So what kind of questions can lead to beautiful epiphanies, enlarged and enlivening knowledge and wider understandings? Socrates and the art of happy discovery. So nearly 2,500 years ago, Socrates observed that some types of knowledge were already inside people. Rather than putting knowledge into them, you could actually draw it out of them. Okay, It was there in some form all along. Okay. And there's a wonderful thing. But the story doesn't end there. Modern research, see reference one, has found that Socratic questioning can be an extremely effective antidepressant. So here are three methods I used with Samantha to help her think differently about her situation so that she could start to think about it less. So number one, does your idea apply in all contexts? And if not, why not? So I asked Samantha, would you say that all women who leave abusive men are bad women? Notice I didn't tell her she wasn't a bad person. I simply encouraged her to look at the wider picture, the pattern. Okay, Getting her to examine it from different perspectives. She drifted inward. Her eyes glazed over, a sign that a reframe may actually be happening. And eventually she said, no, they may have good reasons for leaving. So wheels were starting to turn. I felt Socrates by my side. Well, almost. Okay. So other examples of this kind of context-widening questions are, is everyone who has experienced divorce a failure? Someone says, I'm such a failure because of the divorce. Can a person who's generally a success 
still fail at some things. Is it possible to be generally liked, but not be liked by everyone? Is anyone in the world liked by absolutely everyone, do you think? Would such a person be likable? Depression has people thinking in all or nothing extremes, but also makes them resistant to more subtle forms of thought. And that may be because of the strong emotionality. Context-widening questions like, does this apply to everyone, or in all situations, can help people start questioning their own depressive assumptions. We can also ask depressed clients questions that help them look at possibilities in another way. So, number two, is it possible? Samantha spoke at length about understanding Mike and him being misunderstood, and this is something that he'd brought up a lot during the relationship. It seems that he'd used the word understand a lot with her, and it had sort of rubbed off on her. No one understands me, he would say to her. And yes, Mike did sound a bit like a raging adolescent or... You don't understand me, apparently a cardinal sin. Samantha lived with Mike for six depressing years. He shouted incessantly at her about her not understanding him without ever seeming to make any effort to understand her. And in fact, what it might actually mean to understand another human being had never even been discussed. Okay. It was just a term thrown around. I asked Samantha, is it possible that understanding someone may make little or no difference to their behavior. And again, she'd never really thought about that before. And uh, it, it was a thought that was germinating a sense of possibility, I felt, in her mind. I asked her, is it possible that someone can't be understood in ways that the word understood is often used? Say, in the way we understand algebra, not that I ever did, or roadmap signs. This was about as leading as my Socratic questioning got, you know. So other possible examples to use with clients include... Is it possible for a really clever person to do dumb things occasionally? Is it possible that people who had really terrible childhoods could find ways to live happily enough as adults? Is it possible that sometimes the best way to help someone is not to help them? Depressive thinking, actually any emotionally driven thinking, narrows context. It has us looking for and seeing only those possibilities that fit the narrow spectrum of the prevailing emotional bias. We only accept propaganda that backs it up. The wisdom of Socrates can help us out here too. So number three, are there any possible reasons? Okay, there are many ways of looking at just about anything, but the interpretive lens of depression is narrowly filtered. So let's think about it. Had Samantha abandoned her ex-alcoholic, abusive, misunderstood partner? Or had she escaped him to save herself and her young daughter? And possibly him as well in some ways. Had she simply replaced one excuse to drink, you don't understand me, with another, I drink because you abandoned me. He drank when she was with him, and he drank now that she wasn't with him. Yet he blamed her for leaving for the fact that he was drinking and unhappy. But he was already doing that. These were the facts. So I I didn't point that out to Samantha in so many words, but I asked Samantha, are there any other reasons why Mike drinks and actually have nothing to do with you being with him or not being with him? And that was a direct question. And she pondered for a moment before revealing that actually he'd drunk before she'd even met him. 
I further asked, is it always someone's fault that a person drinks and doesn't find happiness? Okay, that was more of a Socratic question. Or is it just how things work out for some people until they find it within themselves to change? People make illogical jumps all the time. The way they do this is to go from specific to global. He seems to hate me. I must be unlovable. I failed that test. I must be stupid in all ways. She wouldn't go out with me. No woman will ever want to be with me. And that's a very depressive way of looking at reality. Classic depressive bias. Socratic questioning can serve as a powerful corrective to this kind of depressive reasoning which often lies unexamined beneath a general feeling of hopelessness. Other possible examples of Socratic questioning uh, that we can use with clients include, would there be any possible reasons why someone might take a long time to text a person back other than that they no longer like them? Okay, not for Samantha, but for some clients. Can you think of any reasons why a friend might break off contact other than that they suddenly start hating the person they broke contact with. So, so we're looking at general patterns. Are there any possible causes of feeling unhappy other than faulty brain chemicals? So we're getting people, people to think in wider perspectives, in general senses. We can, we can also add to this kind of questioning with evidence-based inquiry. So all emotional problems rely on selective cherry-picking of toxic evidence or imagined evidence. So what's the evidence? So I might ask a client, that's really interesting. Can you tell me the actual evidence that shows she broke up with you because you're ugly? Did she tell you that? We're just looking for evidence. I see, and what evidence have you got that your husband no longer loves you? What's the actual evidence? Tell me the evidence you have that you are a bad mother and any counter evidence as well, please, just so we can get this straight. We want to see the reality of this. What evidence is there that you're not a complete failure? Have there been times when you've succeeded at things, at anything? Now, none of these assume that how your client sees things is skewed in any way. Maybe they're right. Okay. But it does require they go beyond simply assuming they're right or or imagining reality is just as they see it. We're really looking, what is the reality here? It can also help people to avoid globalizing specific instances. He doesn't like me. Nobody likes me. Okay, Specific global. So the fact is that feeling emotional about something may have nothing to do with the reality of what we feel emotional about. That's an important point. A fire alarm can go off independently of the presence of an actual fire. Simply asking questions like this really began to loosen some of Samantha's thinking. She clearly also found my company calming, happy to say, as she was able to examine some of these ideas non-emotionally for the first time. This in itself was a major step for her. You can also use Socratic questioning for yourself in many areas of life. Fair and square. When we use Socratic questioning with someone, we are not really suggesting their way of seeing something is wrong. We're not really contradicting them, only that it may be incomplete. We're not suggesting anything at all, really, other than that they look at things fairly and squarely. Socratic questioning is used beyond the therapy room, of course. You know, parents, teachers and coaches as well as good friends use this powerful form of perspective enlarging 
without inflicting a contradiction on someone and context-widening communication to indirectly build the capacity for more creative thought in people. Depression and its close companion, low self-esteem, stop people being reasonable and fair about themselves. So depressive thought, driven by powerful feeling, is fanatical in a sense, that it deals in absolutes and rigid, sharp all-or-nothings, extremist thinking. Socratic questioning is so antidepressive because it requires the kind of thinking that people who are resistant to depression use naturally. It's an ancient way of encouraging a delightful maturation of thought that makes navigating the capricious seas of existence so much easier. And people can learn to use Socratic questioning for themselves without needing someone to ask the questions. So once we start asking ourselves questions, in this context, Socratic questioning is simply a way of thinking about and perceiving reality. By her fourth session, Samantha felt she was no longer depressed. She'd caught herself not thinking about Mike for whole days at a time because it had become less emotionally compelling to do so because the emotion had quietened down. And when she did think of him, it was with calm compassion, not jagged and exhausting self-recrimination. I'd asked her in the first session a question. I'd asked her, is there any way you did what you did at the time because it was all you felt like you could do and your survival instinct kicked in? And she hadn't actually answered that question at the time. And I thought that she'd just chosen not to think about it. But in the very last session, she told me I'd been right in saying this. And I reminded her I hadn't said this. I just asked her a question. And that's right, she smiled like the sun finally emerging from behind the clouds. When a client smiles and starts smiling, it's a wonderful thing. And she said, yeah, that's right. You asked the question. And last night I finally found the answer. I have too much love for my daughter and myself to carry on like that because I'm a good person. And she came to that all by herself. I never once told her she was a good person. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Turrell of Uncommon Knowledge. And if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's unk.com slash blog. (laughs) 